You're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I review one episode of Rod Serling's iconic series and round out the show with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and Hulu's Dimension 404 in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at obsessiveviewer, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. For anthology shirts and other merch, uh, check out my TeePublic store or simply go to tpublic.com and type in obsessiveviewer.com. Uh, you'll be able to find um, shirts with the anthology logo, obsessive viewer logo, and uh, Shocktober and Irvington logo. Shocktober and Irvington, of course, being a one-night event screening of short horror films here in Indianapolis uh, that my friends and I over at the Obsessive Viewer host each year. This year it's going to be on October 6th, 2017 at the Irving Theater. More information on that can be found at shocktoberinirvington.com, and you'll be hearing a promo for that um, event later in this episode. Today on the podcast, I will be discussing A Thing About Machines. It's the fourth episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on October 28, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive uh, at the at the suggestion of uh, longtime listener Greg, uh, who suggested that, and then in a follow up email uh, a week or so later, suggested that I uh, watch the what I can assume was much more entertaining and well made movie uh, duel by Steven Spielberg, but I had already committed to maximum overdrive and I'm already a, a huge Stephen King fan. So I figured I might as well use, uh, do that, but I will be reviewing, um, duel at some point in the future since it has a tie to Richard Matheson. Um, before I get to my actual reviews and everything though, I do have a few emails that I would like to go through. Um, I, I did take a little bit of an, of an extended hiatus and I do apologize for that. And I appreciate your guys's patience while I get back into the swing of things here. Um, in the interim between episodes, I did receive uh, a handful of emails that I kind of want to go through. And, uh, again, you can email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com or, uh, or comment on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthology pod. Um, so this first email comes from Rick. He didn't specify where he's from, but that's fine. Uh, he said, hello, Matt. I'm a late comer to your podcast, so I'm slowly making my way through the episodes. Concerning King Nine Will Not Return, perhaps a better film to pair it with rather than Bomber's Moon would have been Soul Survivor, a 1970 TV movie that shares a lot of DNA with King Nine. Desert Plane Crash, Guilt and Ghosts, stars William Shatner. Um, I watched Twilight Zone during the 60s. Yeah, showing my age. Um... Yeah, I looked up Soul Survivor, and that is interesting. I believe that it was also inspired by the same uh, uh, news article that inspired uh, King Nine. But yeah, maybe at some point I—I I mean, I don't know if they—I uh, 
I don't know if it has any. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a uh, Soul Survivor from 1970. Uh, this story is loose, loosely based on the discovery of the B-24 Liberator bomber, the Lady Be Good, that was found in the Libyan desert after the cr- after the crew got lost on their first bombing mission to Italy. Yeah, that really would have been a good um, <laughs> a good uh, one to pair it with. Uh, maybe down the road, I'll I'll pair it with another episode if there's something with you know fighter pilots or or what have you. Um, but yeah, and I'll, regardless, I'll have to try to find uh, a copy of that and check it out regardless. Um, next email, and also thank you, uh, Rick, for emailing in, and uh, hope you're still listening and that you, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, following that up, uh, Greg had some insight into King Nine Will Not Return as well, Um uh, long-time listener Greg said, did you notice in King Nine Will Not Return that when the psychiatrist scoops up some of the sand he finds in Embry's shoe and starts pouring it from one hand to the other, the camera dissolves to a shot of uh, the King Nine's wing and what looks like sand being porn, uh, poured on it. I just thought that was a cool visual metaphor for the uh, observation Rod makes in his outro. Odd how the real consorts with the shadows uh, how the, uh, how the presence fuses, how the present fuses with the past. It makes you wonder how this fusion will manifest itself in the future. Will Embry's release from the hospital trigger another relapse? Will he take it? Will he walk out the hospital's front door and find himself back in the cockpit of the King nine? Will he have a companion this go around his shrink who keeps assuring him that it's all in his head? Poor Embry has probably lost forever the ability to discern that bright divide between the real and the imagined, a sad but not uncommon fate for many travelers through the Twilight Zone. Um, once again, just really great, really great insight from, from Greg. And yeah, I agree that that episode raises a lot of questions with, with what that character, what's to come from that character, what's, what's to happen to that character afterwards. A lot of these episodes seem to kind of have that thing where at the end of the episode, you know, uh, the central figure of the, of the episode itself has gone through a, a traumatic ordeal and life changing even. And we're kind of left to deduce what, what effect that's going to have on, on his or her life at the end of the day. And I, and that's something I'm really enjoying about, um, the twilight zone. And, uh, Greg also, uh, writes that in this, in this, I'll, throw out there in the podcast and see what people think. Uh, he said, I also wanted to throw this out as much as I enjoy the current format, perhaps going back to two twilight zone episodes per installment would be preferable. You could get through the series faster. Plus you wouldn't need to devote an inordinate amount of time to episodes that don't deserve it. Like Mr. Beavis. Um, yeah, that's something that I've kind of dabbled with. Um, I, I would, I, I don't think that I'll be doing that anytime soon. Cause I kind of like doing the, bonus reviews and everything. I think when I get to season four though, since there's, those are the hour long episodes, I'll probably double those up. Um, or who's to say, I don't know at this, at this point, I'll probably won't get to that until I'm in my forties, but, um, I'm 31 now, just so you guys know. But anyway, that's some good feedback. And, uh, if you, if you think that if you agree with Greg or if you have any input in on uh Greg's suggestion for doubling up episodes again, uh, let me know. I'm just, I'm curious what you guys think. Um, as of right now, I'm just going to try to get back into the swing of things and try to get back on track and get cons- uh, consistent releases, which I'm sure is what I said last time, right before I went in, went on a hiatus and unannounced hiatus. And I do apologize, but uh, I'll hopefully be getting back on track soon. Um, 
All right. And then, and finally, rounding out the emails, this, this one was actually on, uh, the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthology pod. Uh, Richard said, just listen to your podcast for episode 23, a nice place to visit. You were lukewarm on this episode, yet I still think you gave it too much credit. I didn't see the subtlety to the character that you perceived where you saw his, where, uh, where you saw his generosity. I saw a show off. His records seem like they were supposed to establish that he is, that he was irredeemably evil from the beginning. And within a few minutes, it was predictable how this episode was going to end. Worst Twilight Zone episode so far. Your podcast is great though. Thanks for doing these and giving me a reason to watch. And uh, thank you for listening, Richard. And, uh, you know, it's funny. The more I think about a nice place to visit, yeah, it, it is a pretty, uh, obvious twist and everything. And it's entirely possible. It's definitely entirely possible that I, uh, put too much, too much thought into the subtlety of the character or put, or put more into the character than what was there. Um, cause I mean the, the record scene is pretty clear cut that, you know, he is pretty evil from, <laughs> from, from childhood, but, um, maybe I was looking into something that wasn't there, but I enjoyed it for what it was. It's not an episode that I'm eager to go back to or anything like that, but, um, but yeah, it's that's interesting. I'm I'm uh interested to hear what other people thought what other people thought of that episode, but um but yeah, thanks for writing in Richard and uh he's also one of the uh he's also a part of the Obsessive Viewer Facebook group. So shout out to Richard. Okay, so let me get into my review of a thing about machines and before I actually get to the actual review, um, what I'm going to do is read a plot description courtesy of uh, The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Uh, just so you guys know, from here on out, we, were, we, will be spoiling, uh, we will be spoiling the episode, A Thing About Machines, and uh, we will be spoiling it in its entirety. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, go check it out on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, um, really anywhere. <laughs> Um, it's available pretty much anywhere. Um, and then come back and listen to this review. But, uh, if you have, then here is the plot description. Um, spoilers on (laughs) Bartlett Finchley with the sensitivity of an alligator has built a reputation for verbally abusing his fellow man. When things do not work the way he wants, Finchley vents his anger on the appliances in his house, giving the local repairmen steady revenue. As he explains to his private secretary before he walks, before she walks out on him, he prefers to blame, uh, he prefers to blame shift his failures on the machines that fail to work. He fears one day that the machines will seek vengeance. His suspicions are confirmed when late one evening, after downing a few drinks, he defends himself in a mortal combat with the household appliances. The typewriter types Get Out of Here Finchley on carbon paper. The television set displays a gypsy dancer who delivers the same message. The telephone repeats the same verbal warning, and the, uh, and the electric razor takes, uh, takes on a life of its own. He ventures outside to find himself in a deadly game of cat and mouse with his automobile, which is trying to run him over. In the morning, the cor- the coroner and police drag the body of Bartlett Finchley out of his swimming pool. The coroner claims a, death- a dead body usually floats on water, but this one stayed on the bottom as if something held him down. The police rule it, a- rule it an accident, possibly a heart attack or too much alcohol in the system. 
Starring in this episode as Bartlett Finchley is Richard Hayden. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, and he actually passed away back in 1985 from a heart attack. Um, let's see. He did most, uh, mostly comedic roles, uh, in, or in his more comedic roles, he deliberately makes himself sound as if he were talking through his nose. Um, that was kind of one of his trademarks in his performances and comedic roles. And he was best known for, um, his roles, his roles in the sound of music and young Frankenstein and, uh, kind of an interesting piece of trivia about him. He was a reclusive individual who liked horticulture shunned interviews and never particularly integrated to the closely knit British colony in Hollywood. Um, so that's kind of interesting there. Um, co-starring as Miss Rogers is Barbara Stewart. This was her only Twilight Zone episode. Um, however, she was also in one episode of One Step Beyond back in 1960, and she was perhaps best known for playing Sergeant Carter's girlfriend in the TV show Gomer Pyle USMC, which that show, uh, I, I remember I grew up watching reruns of that, or like my, my dad was a huge fan of that because he was, he, he was a former Marine. And uh, he liked Andy Griffith, so um, he was a big fan of Gomer Pyle. And also we lived in Indianapolis, uh, like right next to the Indianapolis 500, so Jim Neighbors always sang the song at the start of the uh, 500. Anyway, um, Barbara Stewart passed away in 2011. Terrible segue. Um, and then rounding out the cast is Barney Phillips as the TV repairman. Uh, this is his second of four Twilight Zone episodes. Previously, we saw him in The Purple Testament. And next we'll see him is in Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And writer for this episode is Rod Serling. Uh, he came up with the idea when he was shaving uh, on a day where three of his appliances had given out. Um, and he actually had a quote that was uh, included in the Twilight Zone uh, unlocking the door to a television classic. Let me go ahead and pull that up um, because it was a pretty interesting. It was a pretty interesting quote because it uh, it resonates today. Uh, so let me see. So uh, Serling recounted to TV Guide how he came up with the idea for this Twilight Zone entry. Uh, he said, "Quote this one I got." Uh, Quote, this one I got trying to shave with a razor during a given morning when three appliances in my house gave out, a washer, a dryer, and a television set. It occurred to me how absolutely vulnerable we are to gadgets, gimmicks, and electronic gym crackery. Uh, then the progression took the form of a story involving a man whose appliances became entities, and instead of just stop, uh, instead of just stopping on him, they went the full route and actually re uh, remonstrated against him. Unfortunately, the show did not live up to to its potential. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, let's see. Sir uh, Serling later in in December of 1960 wrote a letter to. Uh, to an advertising agency representing the, the sponsor for this episode saying, uh, Serling said, quote, Mr. Finchley drowned in his swimming pool upon re reflecting. I wish I had before I wrote the bloody thing, <laughs> which I mean, I'm, I'll get it. Like I'll get into it in my review and everything, but I, I think, you know, I don't think it's a bad episode. I don't like, I think, I think that's a little harsh, but it's, it's got its issues or it's got, it's, it's a little problematic here and there, but, as I get in, as I'll get into my review, I actually didn't mind a lot of the episode. 
Um, director for this episode is David Oric McDearman. Uh, this was his second of three Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, he previously directed Execution, and his next episode will be back there. And uh, he actually uh, had the end, like he actually had the idea for the drowning at the uh, in the swimming pool. Uh, Serling's original ending involved uh, Finchley being chased by the car into the garage. And then uh, being found the next day on the floor of his uh, parking or on the ground of his uh, driveway, I believe. Um, so I'll go into my review of this episode now. Uh, what I knew beforehand, because obviously the conceit of this podcast is I'm watching this show as a first time viewer. So my thoughts go or my my idea of what the episode was about going into it was just simply that it had something to do with machines. I didn't know anything else about it. And uh and uh like <laughs> this is probably just showing my showing my youth here relative youth i guess i'm 31 i'm old but anyway <laughs> the tv repair van that opens up the scene when when finchley comes home and he sees the the repairman's uh van that just it reminded me vaguely of the movie pleasantville um particularly don Knotts' character um that comes in at the beginning to kind of kind of the give the special remote to uh Toby Maguire and Reese Witherspoon. Uh Pleasantville's a, a nice movie. I, I liked it a lot. Anyway. Uh so my immediate thought was that Finchley really has a stick up his ass and um he's not respectful to the machines or anything. He kind of takes out his aggression on the appliances and, and technology and everything. Um and that and that's pretty clear from the start and I think that's one of the one of the issues that plagued the episode or one of the things that ultimately made this episode not as not as strong as it probably could have been is that just right from the start we're introduced to Finchley and introduced to Finchley's relationship with technology and relationship with the machines that keep failing and going haywire and everything and it's kind of it's kind of I don't know. It kind of feels a little bit um, sudden. Not not necessarily sudden, but it feels a little bit. Uh, how to phrase it? It feels like it should be more. Uh, it feels like we should have an introduction, essentially, as a character. Like we should have an introduction of him as this curmudgeonly person who who hates other people, misanthropic person. Um, and then have the ha, like show the machines like slowly start to turn on him um, from the start. We are just led, like we're thrown into the situation that he's already had experience with. Hence the TV repairman being there and, and him talking about how he hasn't been able to um, like all this weird stuff has been going on. And I don't know. It just kind of seems like, it should have been, we should have been introduced to him and his personality and then the machines go crazy. Um, which I understand why that's not the case. I mean, this is a very short, like it's a short 25 minute episode, 23 minute episode. Um, so there's an economy to the storytelling. There's not a lot of time for them to really, to really play with it and everything and and really set it up. Um, but with Serling's uh, opening narration, I, I really liked him being in the TV, like on, on TV. I thought that was, I just, I don't have any like other comments about it other than I thought that was just a nice touch. Um, it was nice for them to utilize the, 
the scene that way and uh, have the opening monologue be in his and Serling's screen presence be uh, tied into what the episode's about in such a significant way. Um, so Finchley just right off the bat, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say, or it's kind of hard to determine when you're watching it for the first time, but it's, it's kind of presented like Finchley is lonely. Um, and he's just unhappy with his life, but then it's suddenly like, it's more that he's just panicking and he's terrified. So when he is trying to get Miss Rogers to stay, to stay there and, and, He's trying to get her to like have dinner with him and, and just stay with him. It's not, it's hard to discern whether that's completely out of loneliness and being a lonely person or if it's solely because he's terrified of the other, of the machines, uh, you know, taking on the life of their own. And I mean, upon rewatching it, it's pretty clear that it, it's the latter. Like he's just paranoid and terrified of the machines. But I think that there should have been, or there is something that's, something there that that should be more about him being lonely and and kind of regretful of his life. Um I noticed I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I noticed that between Miss Rogers, the widow that he calls and then the second person he calls in between the two, like they're all women that he calls to see if he want they want to get get dinner or go out or anything. And I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if there's some kind of sexual connotation or sexual um, underlying thing there, or if that's just, you know, luck of the draw that he just, the, the Serling just decided, Oh, he'll call three women. Um, and I don't know if that, I don't know what the intention was there, but I kind of feel like there should have been something there to, or I would have been more interested if he was, if he was more, uh, lonely with his station in life and, and lonely with the position that he's put himself in, in addition to being hunted down by these, uh, machines that have a life of their own. Um, speaking of Miss Finch or Miss, uh, Miss Rogers, I really like that character. Um, she's his personal secretary and we're seeing like the tail end of her professional relationship with Finchley because she's already, um, she's already like, she's, she's walking out on him. She's quitting and, and telling him to, you know, that she's, uh, she's not going to take it anymore. And I like that character because she's, she's snappy. She's, uh, she's got like retorts to his, to his attitude and everything. It's not like she's just this employee that he's, that he's abusing, uh, emotionally or abusing, verbally like she's she's dishing it back out at him and she's like not taking any of his crap and it it's not that she's reached a boiling point at that point she seems kind of even keeled with how she it seems like that's an indication of how she always is and she's just like okay well i'm not going to take it anymore i just i like that level of characterization and that kind of the writing for her was was really strong i thought and uh kind of jumping back just a little bit finchley mentions that um, he says that for as long as I've lived, I have never been able to operate machines, which I thought was interesting. Um, a, it's, uh, expanding and developing what's, what's already been shown on screen and, and what's shown to us that he's not a, uh, that, that he's, that his machines are messing up. Like when he says, I have never been able to operate machines, that just makes me think like, this has been the status quo for him for his entire life. And it just, it seemed kind of, it seemed kind of like it stood out a little bit because the TV repairman, Barney Phillips, he says that he's like, 
um, you know, maybe it's the way that you treat the machines and that's why they're going back. Uh, maybe that's why they're not, you know, working for you, which I mean, now that I'm saying it out loud, that is clearly like a metaphor for how he treats people. Like he doesn't, like he doesn't treat people well and that's why he's, oh wow, maybe that is, wow. I think I just, <laughs> I think I just realized the whole point of this episode. Um, yeah, he treats machines terribly. Um, and then they're coming back after him and leading to his death. And then on the other hand, or like in the real world and in his personal life, he treats people terrible. So that's why they're, you know, not around. Like that's why he's pushing everyone. Like that's why everyone has been pushed away from him. Um, like when he calls the, when he calls the third woman, like he introduces, like he, like he says, um, how's my favorite attractive young widow? And that's like, like that made me laugh. And then it's like, what? That's such a weird, um, kind of, it's such a bizarre way to, um, introduce yourself to someone or such a weird way to refer to someone. Like it, it has like no tact whatsoever. And it's, there's no sympathy or empathy or anything like that. It's just like, it just, it felt so wrong and like, like, uh, socially awkward. And it just kind of shows what kind of character Finchley is that he is, he's someone who treats people who, who will treat people terribly. And as a result does not have that emotional connection with other human beings across the board. So yeah, now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm actually liking this episode a little bit more. And as far as his, um, uh, remark about never being able to operate machines. Maybe that's saying that he's never been able to, uh, uh, create a meaningful relationship with another human being. So that's interesting. Also, it reminded me of an experience I had in the movie theater watching fantastic beasts, beasts and where to find them. There was this obnoxious girl that was tweeting and, and Snapchatting the entire time. Like I mentally thought like, I wish that I had like a superpower to make her not be able to, use a cell phone for forever. Like every time she uses a cell phone, I wish it would just break because it just, it bothered me so much. That's one of my biggest pet peeves anyway. Um, and now you guys know why I don't have any meaningful relationships with other people in my life. Um, I'm, I'm only kidding. Anyway, uh, Miss Rogers leaves and I like the dynamic. Like I said, I like that character and I like that, uh, dialogue. And the, when I was rewatching it, all I kept thinking was, man, I wonder like what that character must be thinking after this episode's events. Like the character of Miss Rogers, like she ends it, like she's very cold to, to Finchley. Like she says, like the last thing she says is you're in this mortal combat with these machines and I hope you lose. And, um, that scene like that, that's a very strong, uh, very strong and, and mean spirited thing to say. And then, uh, as an aside, I, I like that Finchley yells, get out to her as she's already leaving. And it kind of just reinforces his terrible personality and how he has this disposition towards people that he's better than them or that he needs to have the last word when she's clearly leaving. I, I kind of thought that was a nice touch. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but Anyway, Miss Rogers, like, leaving it by saying, like, I hope you lose. I just, I couldn't help but wonder, like, I wonder what she, like, can you imagine how terrible she would feel the next day when she finds out that her boss just died under somewhat mysterious circumstances? Like, he died in a pool and, 
like the last thing she said to said to him was essentially i hope you die and i hope you i hope that you're killed by your machines like i can't imagine like i would love to like revisit that character or to know like what she went through after that because i mean that's just that's that'll completely destroy you um so throughout the episode we get some interesting um depictions of machines acting up and, and uh, acting aggressive toward him. Um, it starts kind of innocently enough, I guess with, um, with the, uh, clock, um, ringing louder and louder and louder. Um, even after he's destroyed it and everything. Um, and then it escalates from there. And I, I like the escalation of this episode because it goes from there to, um, the typewriter typing out, get out of here, Finchley, over and over again. And then we've got the television, um, showing a, a gypsy dancer, um, saying, get out of here, Finchley. And the combination of those two, I was really wondering if this episode was going to lead to it being a kind of a big misunderstanding and that, uh, he like that the machines weren't, weren't threatening him. They were trying to get him out of the house because it was about to be set on fire or something or about to like, something was about to happen that he would have, he would have died if he stayed in the house. Um, obviously that's not at all what happens in the episode, but I thought that, that would have been an interesting angle. Um, and I kind of wonder if there's something similar to that, uh, in the twilight zone in the future. But anyway, I thought that would have been an interesting angle, but I, I like what we got here because, because the next thing, and by the way, the television, that like that kind of, that was creepy because it was the dichotomy of like the music and the dancer, um, like that coupled with, uh, her saying like in a somewhat threatening tone, get out of here, Finchley, like that just, that meshed really well together and made it more unsettling. Um, and I like that it was escalated, like it escalated the tension from the typewriter thing, which is not, it's the typewriter, uh, typing out the message to him isn't, isn't necessarily innocuous, but it doesn't have that same terrifying aspect of it or that same frightful aspect to it because you can kind of interpret it like I did. You can kind of interpret it as, as maybe they're warning him and you're not sure what, like how malevolent they are and the television kind of cements the malevolence to it. But then we get the really, like what is probably my standout of this entire episode. Like I freaking, I, I really loved this. Um, the electric razor. Um, I thought that that was, I thought that that was the best part of the episode. I thought that was incredibly effective because not only is the thought of having like an electric razor and, and like shaving, like you're, you're basically be like, you're, uh, you're allowing yourself to be incredibly vulnerable. And, and like the idea of it having a mind of its own is, is absolutely terrifying. And, uh, and I, I like the way that it was implemented here. Um, and I like the kind of like nervous glance that he gives the, that he gives the razor. Cause he's not sure exactly like how, like if he should shave or anything, but then again, like this episode escalates everything. So, um, the escalation here is that not only is it, does it have a mind of its own, but if it's, I mean, it's floating in midair. And on one hand, I thought that that was a really effective uh, visual effect and it just made it so much more terrifying to me for a couple of reasons. Um, because a, 
it becomes it doesn't it it becomes more than just a a machine with a life of its own it becomes this this almost like this predatory like animal like it becomes like a snake and that is just that's really unsettling and and terrifying and uh and i just i really thought that that was really uh like that made me really uh uncomfortable um and uh Whew, yeah, that 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 was my favorite part. But also the the whole idea of it um defying gravity. Like that's the only thing that's the only example of a of a machine in the episode having a life of its own where it is actually defying gravity, which like I'm maybe I'm putting more into it than than what's there, but like that makes the entire premise even more unsettling and unnerving because like up until that point, we just have, Oh, these like this typewriters typing something. Uh, the clock is ringing the, uh, phone or the, the phone is messing or I don't think the phone necessarily messes up, but, uh, he blames the phone for being rejected. But anyway, um, the television is, is acting all haywire, but now we have like, uh, we have an example of a piece of machinery that is not only taking on its life of its own, but it's unequivocally supernatural. Like it is defying gravity. And like in my mind, my uh, reaction to that was it made me wonder what what exactly the force is that's terrorizing Finchley and what that force is capable of. Like if you think of it as like, oh, demons possessing these machines – like they can do anything. And that's like, that's terrifying. And then, and there's a nice payoff uh, to that at the end of the episode that I'll get to. But I thought that, that was just really cool. And like seeing <laughs> later, seeing the razor going down the stairs, that was, I thought that was a nice, that was a nice touch. That was a nice way of, of doing the razor gag again, but in a different way and making it just as unsettling. I don't know. Something about that is just so unsettling. It reminds me of a snake and it's that, that just, really unnerves me. Um, then we get the, him, uh, the emergency brake on his car messing up. Like that's, I don't know that, that felt a little, it didn't necessarily, I mean, it kind of slowed things down a little bit. Um, but it kind of, I don't know. It kind of, it kind of, it was necessary to transition to night, I guess is the best way I could say it, but it was kind of a nothing scene. It, It didn't really do anything for me except for it. Um, it reinforced his disposition toward other people. And it made me really appreciate, um, uh, it made me really appreciate Richard Hayden's performance. Um, he has this kind of theatricality to him. It might, it might be because he, he has a British accent. Um, uh, that could very well be it, but he has this kind of like pomp to him. And, uh, he, he like has this air, this aura of like, of being more important than other people. And then he plays that really well. And it really goes into the, like the, um, terrible disposition, disposition he has toward other people. Um, so, so, I mean, I guess that scene wasn't a total waste, but it kind of reinforced what we already knew about him. And, uh, let's see. And so, yeah, when he wakes up from his nap, like the static on the TV is a nice way to escalate from the television messing up earlier. Cause earlier it's, you know, he's like, it's just an actual video of, of a woman dancing 
and threatening him. And then now it's like, it's just static and it's garbled and it's, it's a little more scary, honestly. And then I already mentioned the, the razor coming down the stairs. It's a different way to escalate that, that it's actually like, it's not hovering in front of him, kind of sizing him up. It's actually coming after him. And that's kind of a turning point for the episode because then he goes outside and he's chased by the car to his death. And, uh, I liked the kind of, it felt kind of, uh, I wouldn't say big budgety, but it felt like um it felt like a big like the big climax of the car chasing him like that again like this what the, what this episode excels at and and the strength of this episode is in its escalation of the threat and this episode has the car chasing him and it's like it's terrifying like that is that is freaking terrifying um and it's it it was just really effective in his panicked um his panic and exasperation as he's being chased by the car is, is really, um, is really well done and handled really well. And then we get the shot of him being chased into the pool and, and, uh, uh, run over into the pool. I mean, that, that was handled well and that was fine. Um, and one thing that I didn't catch until I actually read it in Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic, but, um, the next scene after he's, after his death, uh, we have the coroner, coroner, wow, we have the coroner and the, uh, the, the police officer, I believe, um, talking about the circumstances of the death. And, um, I really like the ambiguity of that because it, because he could have had a heart attack or, or, uh, you know, they could have, the machines could have killed him. It's kind of up in the air. That was my initial thought that, or that was my thought. Um, when, when I first saw it, it was like, yeah, I like the ambiguity. I mean, it could have been either way. He could have died of a heart attack or whatever, but, um, re- reading, reading the book, like I didn't realize this. I didn't catch this either time that I, or the three times that I watched it, but the water's dripping from the car. So like that alone is really, really, really unsettling. Like that conjures up an image in my head of the car, pinning him down to the bottom of the pool and having him die like he's he's drowned at the bottom of the pool or or killed from the weight of the car like that's that's a really like if you let your imagination run with it that's a really grisly death um and it's fascinating that you know that's i love that that's just like well he didn't float he was just down there at the bottom it's it's just the thought of you know because a car pinned him down there although i don't know if that's necessarily how um how biology works like once the car gets out of it like i mean he would still float i would think but i i don't know but um but yeah that that just that's really unsettling and that kind of uh pays off the or it tracks with the razor being able to do like defy gravity and defy physics by hovering in the air like that that pays off that little uh, effect shot by, uh, showing us that, you know, yes, these machines do have supernatural powers that yes, this car could have pinned him down in the, in the pool to, to murder him. And then, uh, yeah. So, so my initial thought when I first saw it was that the ending was a little underwhelming, but the more I thought about it, it's, uh, it, I mean, it, it pays off well for me. Like, um, 
Yeah, honestly, and I'll get into my closing thoughts here in a second because I have just one piece of trivia. Let me go ahead and do my trivia. Um, but at the end, I thought the ending was fine. Uh, the more I thought about it, the more I enjoyed it and everything. So I, I, I liked that. Um, the one piece of trivia I have is that Serling had named Bartlett Finchley after uh, two characters from two former teleplays. Uh, Bartlett was the name of a character from a script titled The Beloved Outcast. Um, I don't believe that was ever produced, um, but both the Bartlett in that char- in that script and uh, the Bartlett in this episode of The Twilight Zone uh, were both cruel characters. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder who who was who who named Bartlett and Rod Serling's life pissed him off. Um, and then the name Finchley originated in a sci-fi radio drama titled Mr. Finchley versus the bomb. Uh, that was originally going to be in a radio series called it happens to you, but that never materialized. So Serling ended up revising the script for TV and it was eventually aired on the Lux video theater, um, in January of 1952. So about eight years before this episode, well, close to closer to nine years. So my closing thoughts for this episode is, you know, I, I was really positive about this episode. Like, like listening to myself review it and everything, like that's an overall pretty positive review. But still, at the end of the day, I kind of feel like this is a little bit of a middle of the road episode for me. And that's kind of perplexing. Like, um, it doesn't necessarily seem to give that much of a moral or a message aside from, you know, you know, the, uh, like, don't be a dick to other people. Like, it's more, it's more an examination of a character rather than a moral thing. Like, yes, he had, like, he hates other people. Um, he's really, you know, mean toward machines and everything. And I like that correlation and how those, how like that, how those two, like his relationship with people and his relationship with machines kind of mirror each other, but it doesn't really say like, Oh, Hey, you should be nicer. Your machines will kill you. Um, I think that that's, what's kind of keeping it from being a standout episode for me. Like the pieces are all there for a really spectacular episode, but like altogether as a finished product, like the best thing about it is the, is the visual effects and the, um, in the, the, effects of the, the, you know, the cars and the machines going after Finchley. And like, those, those are great aspects of it. Like those are really strong, um, segments of the episode, but pieced together with the episode as a whole, it just felt like it was missing something like that, that moral thing or that, that cautionary tale. Like it felt more like it was just a piece of horror, um, about this miserable character that's, that's about to be killed. Um, and not that Finchley was an unlikable character. Like the Twilight Zone in this this episode is a good example of the Twilight Zone um, really making um, or really creating sympathy out of just very harsh and unpleasant characters. Like Finchley is, I mean, he's a pretty terrible person. But I I think between um, Richard Hayden's performance of him and Rod Serling's writing. Um, like, even though he's just a miserable, curmudgeonly, um, misanthropic character, you still really kind of root for him. You don't want to see him get killed. You don't want to see him get thrown into the pool or anything. You want that razor to, you know, knock it off. Like, it's just, it's something that, like, that is, that is such a talent. Like, this show is, this show is incredible at, at that. 
but again, still, um, it just kind of felt like a middle of the road episode to me at the end of the day. Cause all those pieces, while several of those pieces are really strong and, and great, like putting, putting them all together, it felt like it was still lacking just a little bit of something, but, um, by, by no means is it a bad episode. I didn't dislike hardly any of it, but working together, it just, it just didn't really do it for me as a full episode. Um, but I did like several parts of it. Um, and that'll do it for my review of a thing about machines. Um, let's see. So before I move on to this week's bonus, uh, review, uh, here's a highlight from a recent episode of the obsessive viewer, which is a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friend tiny and a, an occasional guest host, um, from time to time. And this short film was called set adrift. The short film was directed by Jennifer Sheridan and Matthew Markham, and it's the grieving process as told specifically from the dog's point of view. And it was unbelievably moving and incredible. Like, the way that it's put together is, or the way that it's filmed is astounding. You can find The Obsessive Viewer at uh, obsessiveviewer.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can find the episode that you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV191. Okay, and so for this week's bonus review, I <laughs> I am going to talk about Maximum Overdrive. Um, it's a 1986 uh, movie directed by Stephen King having the distinction of being the only movie directed by Stephen King. Um, written by him, the screen the screenplay was inspired by and loosely based on his short story, Trucks, which was included in his first collection of short stories titled Night Shift. And Stephen King uh, described the film as a, quote, moron movie. Um, he considers the process a learning experience after which he intended, he intended never to direct again. And before I get into my thoughts on this, I just want to mention that I am a massive Stephen King fan. Like I love Stephen King. Um, and I am still weeping over how much of a disservice the recent dark tower movie was to the source material. Cause that's like my favorite thing is the dark tower and they, they kind of butchered it. But regardless, I, I love Stephen King. So I was really kind of excited to watch this movie and Oh man, it's, uh, it's not good. It's really not good. My first note is uh, basically the premise is that a comet is crossing over um, in front of the Earth, and while we're while Earth is in the tail of the comet um, for eight days, like uh, trucks take on a life of their own um, and start killing people, and uh, it starts with like an opening opening title card and everything, and the comet is named uh, Rhea M, uh, which just reminds me of a character from the book four of the dark tower series, Rhea of the coos. Um, but anyway, um, from the outset, this movie's silly. It's super campy. The entire soundtrack is done by ACDC, which was probably the biggest mistake of this movie. Um, because it like, it's overbearing. You get ACDC like guitar riffs throughout the movie when you should be building tone. 
And like that does absolutely nothing for the tone or suspense or anything for the movie. It's, it's really, it's really terrible. Um, the movie kind of opens with a, with a chaotic scene on a drawbridge, on a drawbridge. Um, the, the, a bunch of people in cars are, are at a standstill on a drawbridge when it starts raising of its own volition. And so like, um, cars slide down as the, as it gets to a higher, um, as the drawbridge expands, like cars fall into the, fall into the water below. And like, that's pretty cool. And you get to see an ACDC van, which thought, okay, that was fine. Um, that was a pretty cool scene. Then there's another scene with the Coke machine, which I guess that was a misnomer when I mentioned the plot description, because I mean, all machines take on a life of their own, but there is a scene with a bunch of kids and a little at a, at a little league field or yeah, it was a baseball field um, where the coach is wrapping up the, the practice or game or whatever the hell it was. And the, he's getting some Cokes from a vending machine when it starts like throwing out cans of Coke at him and actually like kills him. <clears throat> and I thought that was, that was pretty cool. That was pretty effective. Um, but those, that and the drawbridge scene are like the only two standout scenes for me. Like nothing else in this movie really stood out to me as being anything other than dumb and pretty forgettable. Um, it's kind of fun in a campy sort of way. Um, but I mean, I'm never going to have a desire to see this movie again. Emilio Estevez is, I think he's like an ex con who's working in a restaurant. I think, um, there's a really, really perfunctory, romantic subplot with him and him and a woman that I don't even remember her origin in the movie. And that was one of the biggest downfalls of the movie is that it does kind of the Stephen King thing, which he does really well in his, in his writing, in his books. Um, he basically brings, uh, disparate groups of people or different people from different walks of life together and, and pits them and pits them into a, uh, a supernatural kind of ordeal. Um, and that works like gangbusters on the page. I mean, like every, like all of his novels, like, like, um, or a lot of his novels have just group of kind of misfit characters coming together to overcome evil. And they're, they're always like flawed characters. Like I mentioned the dark tower series that at the center of that is what's called a cotet, which is a group of, a group of people bound by fate. And like the cotet is, a legless, uh, schizophrenic woman, a recovering heroin junkie, like a 12 year old boy and a talking raccoon like dog. <laughs> like it's, it's the most absurd thing. And then like you have that same thing with, with a lot of his other works. Um, and what this movie does so terribly is that he tries to do that. Like he has different characters coming together, but they, they're all like different standalone subplots. Like Yeardley Smith is, um, she's a newlywed, I think. And there's a woman, oh, the woman that, that was, uh, that becomes Emilio Estevez's love interest is like, she was a hitchhiker, I think with a Bible salesman that was, that was really obnoxious. And it's like, they all kind of converge at this truck stop. And at that point, I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm 
having a little bit of trouble tracking these characters. Not only that, but like there's another character that's that's part of the baseball team, like the little league team that he's kind of off on his own thing. It's just like it has the makings of of a of a standard or really good um Stephen King story and, and Stephen King plot devices, but it's just it's faltered so hard in this in this entire movie. But I don't know. At the end of the day, I was kind of dozing off. Um, <laughs> I was kind of really dozing off and, and, and was really struggling to keep my attention, but, um, it's a pretty silly movie. Uh, eventually I will check out duel, um, at, at Greg's suggestion and, uh, hopefully I'll have a better experience with this. Um, I should also say that I have not read Stephen King's short story that, uh, Maximum Overdrive is based on trucks from the, from the Night Shift, uh, collection. I plan on reading that eventually. But yeah, cause on my bucket list is to read all the Stephen King stuff. But, um, but yeah, and assuming that I can get, you know, back on track with anthology and get Obsessive Viewer back on track where I want it, I might, Oh, I don't know if I even, if I should even say it, but I might have something in the works for a third podcast for me and Tiny. That would just be a monthly thing kind of devoted, devoted to the Dark Tower. But that's always content. That's only going to be contingent on whether or not I get anthology back up and running, um, and on a steady release schedule. Um, no matter what, if I, if me and Tiny do this Dark Tower podcast, like we're, um, like, like we're kind of in the planning stages of right now, no matter what, like I'm not going to devote attention to that until like that, until I know that, um, anthology is properly taken care of. So anyway, um, anyway, yeah, that, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, maximum overdrive. I mean, don't watch it. It's, uh, if you haven't seen it and you're kind of curious about it, if you're a Stephen King fan, maybe check it out, I guess. But it, there's not really anything in it. I mean, if you're an ACDC fan, you might really like it. But, I mean, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, but anyway, regardless of that, thank you, Greg, for, uh, for giving me the suggestion. And if you guys have any suggestions on what I should, uh, what I should watch as a bonus review for The Howling Man, um, let me know. Cause I, I was thinking that it might, my, cause I don't, I've never seen the howling man. I was thinking that it might have something to do with a werewolf. So I was thinking about doing like a werewolf, like a classic werewolf kind of movie. Um, but I don't know if that's what it's about. So I'll have to watch it and then, and then come up with it, come up with a, a bonus review later, but I'm kind of losing steam here. Um, thank you guys for listening. If you want to support the podcast, go leave a rating review on iTunes. If you're in Indianapolis, make sure you check out shocktober and irvington.com. Uh, I forgot to mention that, uh, tickets are on sale now for $6, um, after Labor Day weekend. So after September 4th, those tickets are going to go up to seven or $8. Um, and of course you can, you can also get a $1 discount by using the promo code podcast two, uh, when you purchase it. Um, so yeah, so, uh, go check that out. It's going to be a blast October 6th, 2017. And then, uh, yeah, that does it for this week's episode. Um, or this episode of anthology. Once again, thank you guys for bearing with me during another, um, unannounced hiatus. I'm going to get back on track with this. I promise. Um, because I really love doing this and I really appreciate all of all of everyone listening and, and 
giving me feedback and interacting with me and, and all the kind words and everything. So, um, having said all that, thank you guys for listening. I'll play a promo for Sharktober in Irvington, and then uh, I'll see you guys next time. Tickets are on sale now for the fourth annual Shocktober in Irvington presented by the Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Join the hosts of the Obsessive Viewer on October 6th, 2017 at the Irving Theater for a one-night event screening of short horror films including the premiere screenings of the latest film in J.P. Lex Cross Medium Elsewhere World Universe, the latest film from Snapshot Productions, and much more. Come celebrate the horror genre in the historic Irvington area and meet the filmmakers with live Q&As after each screening. You can also win DVDs and Blu-rays, movie-related party games, horror-themed Funko Pop figures, gift cards to Irvington businesses, and so much more. Tickets are on sale now at shocktoberinirvington.com. All proceeds go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. And whether at the Irving Theater or in your nightmares, we will be seeing you on the 6th of October. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For more of Anthology and a full archive of my episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to help support the show, the easiest way you can do that is by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also make donations to the show courtesy of the donate link in the show notes of each episode and on anthologypod.com. For recurring donations, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and just choose one of the anthology reward tiers. If you enjoy Anthology, feel free to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friend Tiny and occasional guest co-hosts over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also join The Obsessive Viewer Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. For book reviews and commentary on the world of reading, check out our sister site at ObsessiveBookNerd.com. And for philosophical discussions from a secular viewpoint, check out my friends Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Finally, if you'd like to contact me with your thoughts on the show, my reviews, my bonus reviews, or for any other reason, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send me an email at matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or send me a message on Facebook and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.